So we're gonna we're in the middle of a section in the book of Ezekiel. So you know, like you guys haven't been with us for most of Ezekiel. Um, we're in the middle of a section where uh, we're in the judgment part of Ezekiel, like the serious part. And the section that we're reading, God is specifically sending messages of judgment to the nations around the nation of Israel, because most of what when God judged the nation of Israel and the city of Jerusalem was destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians. A lot of the nations around them kind of laughed and took territory, and, you know, uh, it, was really, it was not great the way they acted. And so some of these uh, judgments have to do with that, where God is saying, okay, because of the way you behaved when I destroyed the city of Jerusalem, here's what's going to happen to you. And so today, last week, we did all of... Um, we did all of... I should have put the map for this one up, too, but we already have 50 maps today. Um, uh, the, the nations right around Israel. And remember, if you remember, we were doing kind of a loop. We started on the northeast, and then we moved to the east, and then the southeast, and then we flipped over to the west. And if we were doing a circle, we're just moving to the next nation in the circle. And the next nation in the circle is called Tyre. And what we're going to do today, the, the judgment, the next two big sections of judgment are on a, um, the city-state of Tyre, and then on um, Egypt. And so from chapters, um, the next three chapters, we're going to be in uh, talking, 26, 7, and 8 are talking about Tyre, and then uh, 29, 30, and 31 talk about Egypt, um, or up to 32 talks about Egypt. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to read, um, I may have got those chapters wrong, whatever. There's three about Tyre, three about Egypt. Um, what we're going to do is with Tyre and Egypt, we're going to read two of the chapters. So today we're going to read these two chapters. Um, 26 and 27. And then next week, we're going to do a sermon where in chapter 28 and chapter 32, so in Tyre and in Egypt, there are specific judgments to the leaders of those nations. And so we're going to talk about power and politics and faith and all that stuff next week. And we're going to do it by talking about the leaders of the city of Tyre and Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So for each of these for Tyre and Egypt, we're going to take two chapters, basically, for each one to talk about the whole nation. That's what we're going to do today. So first, what I want you to do is just to see where Tyre is on a map. So um, if you look at this map, Tyre is way up in the top left there. Do you see that where it says T-Y-R-E? And way at the top, there's a tiny little city. Oh, yeah, there you go. Thanks, man. Nice. Look at us. <laughs> Have you been shining out on my face when nobody's look, or when I can't see? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so that's the city of Tyre. Um, it's on the Phoenician coast. Um, it was about 20 miles uh, down the coast from a city called Sidon. So when you see it in the New Testament, they're often lumped together. Tyre and Sidon, you'll see both of these. Um, and it was an ancient city. It's at least as old as Abraham. We know it was there when Abraham was around. Um, and then what I want to do is I want to show you what the city looked like. So this is actually a little weird city. So um, this is a map of a battle we'll talk about in a second. But um, the city, the main city of Tyre was on an island. Uh, and I wrote it down, I thought, somewhere. Maybe it's later in my notes. I think it's like a mile and a half off the coast. And it was a, an island, and the island had a wall. So that red line on the island is the wall. And it's completely surrounding the city of Tyre. And then there's, um, hey, shine your uh, little light there on the bay. Do you see the bay right there where those two boats are going in? Yeah, those were like the main, that's like the main entrance to the city of Tyre. There was a bay where there were ports and that sort of stuff. And Tyre was a very important 
center of trade. This was like the center hub for all of goods and stuff to be shipped all over the Mediterranean. So if you were bringing stuff to Tyre, and you would bring it to the mainland, and you would bring it to you know this, this whole little area. Now, the prophecy, we, before we jump into that, uh, before we actually read it, I'm just going to tell you what happens. Um, this prophecy is one of many prophecies in the Old Testament about this city. Um, we see these oracles of judgment in, uh, I wrote down here, Isaiah, Amos, Joel, Zechariah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. That's six of them. Six of the prophets all have judgments against this city. And basically, they all say the exact same thing. God is going to bring this city to its knees. He will humble and then destroy it. And so here in Ezekiel 26 through 28, he specifically says, I'm going to do it by using the Babylonians first and then a bunch of other nations after the Babylonians. Now, here's the problem. This is one of those places where prophecy has sort of multiple levels of fulfillment, right? We've talked about this. Prophecy is not like a weird secret code. We have to find the one instance or that sort of a thing. Um, it's a bit muddy exactly what's going on here. So again, here's the, this is the geography of, um, uh, of the city of Tyre. Um, this city, though, had temples and all sorts of stuff on the mainland. So the main, I'm sorry, on the island. The island was the main city of Tyre. But then there was another city called Old Tyre. And that also had a bunch of very important temples and uh, buildings and you know stuff. And that city was where those blue guys are on this map, right? And so Tyre, when you talk about Tyre, it's a little confusing. Which one are you talking about? Are you talking about the one on the island? Are you talking about the one on the main coast? Um, and so it gets a little confusing because when God says, I'm going to destroy the city of Tyre, I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar to do it, and then I'm going to use a bunch of other nations to do it, what exactly does he mean? Does the old city get destroyed? Does the new city get destroyed? Well, this is what happened. First, the Babylonians sieged the city. So King Nebuchadnezzar brought his whole army, the same guys that destroyed Jerusalem, um, and they came up and they sieged the city of Tyre, and um, they destroyed the old city that's on the mainland. But for, I think it was like 13 years, they camped out and did a sea blockade of the island city of Tyre. For 13 years, nobody could get in and out of this city, and Nebuchadnezzar lost. So God says, I'm going to use Nebuchadnezzar and these other nations, and they're going to destroy your city. Um, but Nebuchadnezzar didn't actually destroy the city. He destroyed the old city, but not the new city. So I think, though, that's one level of fulfillment. He destroyed it economically. By the time it was over, he didn't lose exactly. Um, it was kind of a stalemate, and then Tyre agreed to become a vassal state. So basically, they worked for Nebuchadnezzar now, right? Um, so that's one level of fulfillment. But I think the biggest level of fulfillment happened a few years later. Um, in the year 332, there's a guy named Alexander the Great. You heard of him because he's great. I mean, he's not really. He killed a lot of people. He's, he's kind of a turkey, you know. Um, and um, this is one of the most famous battles in history. Now, it was hard for me to not make this whole sermon just telling you about this battle because uh, I've watched, like, I remember watching a while ago, like, a six-part documentary about this battle specifically on YouTube or something, History Channel, maybe back when they still talked about history and not Cajun Pawn Stars or whatever. Um, so, you know, this is a really famous battle. And what happened was he approached the city, and at first he did what they always do. They send out an envoy, hey, we're going to take over your city unless blah, 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 can we come to an agreement? And the Tyrians got really arrogant. And so... Um, they thought nobody will ever take our city. Nebuchadnezzar couldn't even do it. And so he sent some guys on a boat, and they went out from, well, first he destroyed the mainland, you know. 
And then um, the main city of Tyre again, poor main city of Tyre, old Tyre, right? He just keeps getting destroyed. So then he gets some guys on a boat, and they go out to the island city. They get off the boat, and they say, we're from Alexander. And then they kill him. Then they take him up on the walls, and they throw him off the walls, the bodies. So they float back to um, the, the mainland where Alexander and his armies were. Now, if you know anything about Alexander, he took that personally, you guys. He got pretty mad. I th- you know, and he made it his mission. I am going to destroy this city. I don't care what it takes. I don't care how many people have to die. I don't care how long it takes. It, we are going to destroy this city. And so he did. He came up with this plan that is insane, but he actually did it. Okay, so this is what he did. He built a land bridge a mile and a half. I think it was a mile and a half. I thought I wrote down, but I guess I didn't. But he built this bridge, um, they call it a mole, across the waterway so that he, his army could just walk into the island city. Now, anybody know how far Alcatraz is? I don't know. Was it like a mile and a half? I feel like looking at Alcatraz feels like about how long away, how far away this city is. Could you imagine somebody going, we're going to get to Alcatraz and we're going to do it thousands of years ago by piling up rocks and building a little bridge, you know, and building this bridge? And so um, uh, it was a whole thing, right? So as he started building it, the Tyrians, they had a really great navy, and so they attacked it and whatnot. They set fire to it and all the wood. And um, so then they had to, while they were building, they had to have guys out there with bows and arrows and catapults and all sorts like siege towers almost to protect the workers while they were extending this thing out. It's one of the most massive building projects in history. And eventually he made it all the way across and his army got out there, walked across this bridge, walked up to the city of Tyre, broke down the walls. And then while everybody was focused inside the city on the wall over here where the army was gonna break into it, you can see there's a bunch of boats right here at the bottom. Uh, they broke through the wall right here with a bunch of boats. And so all of a sudden, the the armies of Alexander and all of his mercenaries and all these nations had promised Tyre, like Sidon and some of these other nations, Egypt, they promised Tyre, we'll come to your defense if Alexander makes it across. And then all of them ended up uh, siding with Alexander. So he had this massive navy, massive army, um, and they they busted into the city, they broke down the wall, they ravaged the city, raped and pillaged, burned the temples, killed tens of thousands, Um, They took 2,000 of the soldiers and then crucified them on the beaches outside the wall surrounding the city. So they made a wall of people being crucified. They took 30,000 people into slavery away from the city. Um, It was absolutely brutal. This oracle is, uh, in Ezekiel, it points to that level of destruction. God says, this is what's going to happen to your city, and this is why it's going to happen. So let's take a look at... um, at why, and then we'll see the, you know, the, how this truth kind of affects us thousands of years later, right? All right, so follow along. We'll be in Ezekiel. We're going to read 26 and 27. Hold on a sec. I'm going to move this out of the way. So I'm not tapping it with my foot the whole sermon. All right, here we go. In the 11th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me. So we aren't told the month. You know, Ezekiel is very precise in his dating. We've talked about this. He's the most precise one of the prophets. Um, This is the least precise, because all it says is, in this year on the first day of the month, but he doesn't say which month, which is super weird. Um, uh, But this is when the prophecy was given to Ezekiel, right? So this is when this all sort of happened, not when the prophecy comes true. but um, So this is a charge. What happened? What did Ezekiel do? Verse 2. 
Uh, oh, it's already there. Son of man, because Tyre said about Jerusalem, aha, the gateway to the peoples is shattered. She has been turned over to me. I will be filled now that she lies in ruins. So Jerusalem was an economic rival to the city of Tyre. So they were two sort of powerhouses economically. And they did sort of have periods of getting along, like the king of Tyre was friends with David and Solomon. There were periods where they got along, but there were periods where they didn't. And when Jerusalem fell, the people in Tyre, they didn't lose any sleep. When they saw what happened to Jerusalem, they said, cool, because uh, this is good for us, right? Now that that city is ruined, I will be filled. That's what it says. This is like if there were two restaurants in town and they were across the street from each other. And one of them went out of business. And the, the restaurant, the guy, the one that survived, if he goes, yeah, that's great. More customers for us. People, people got to eat. You know? And this is what Tyre did. They saw Jerusalem fall, and they said, great. All these people in Jerusalem were just murdered. A bunch of them taken into slavery. Their temple was destroyed. And you know what that means? More money for me. Right? That's what they thought. More money. We're glad these people died, because now I will have a little bit more. And so if you remember the pattern from these oracles on the nations. It goes, because you did this, therefore, God, I will do this. So this is the therefore, verse 3. So the because was what we just read. Now, therefore, this is what the Lord God says. See, I am against you, Tyre. I will raise up many nations against you, just as the sea raises its waves. Okay, so remember, this is where he actually says it. I'm going to send many nations. In a sec, he'll mention Nebuchadnezzar by name, but he also sort of blankets it with this wide statement. This is going to be a team of nations. It's going to take a lot to destroy you, but it's going to happen. Verse 4, they will destroy the walls of Tyre and demolish her towers. Sound familiar? This is what Alexander did. I will scrape the soil from her and turn her into a bare rock. So this is exactly what happened, right? Uh, Alexander's army broke down the wall in those two places, one over the land bridge, one with the... Um, uh, the boats on the south side there. And remember, this island is a city-state. They feel so secure. This is a nation island. Um, when Nebuchadnezzar tried to attack them, they lasted 13 years. They were very secure in their walls. They thought, boy, nobody is ever going to get into here. The same kind of thing that Jerusalem, the people in Jerusalem had, where they thought, God will never let our city fall. And it, it happens. Verse 5, she will become, continuing the... Um, the description of this judgment. She will become a place in the sea to spread nets, for I have spoken. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So one guy uh, commenting on this verse said, what God's going to do is he's going to take a city like New York, this economic powerhouse, um, or London or something like that, and he's going to demolish it so much that when it's all said and done, they rebuild it, it's just going to be a fishing village. It's just going to be a place you go and spread your nets. Can you imagine telling like New York, you're going to be Daly City, you know, or something, you know, I love ragging on Daly City because most, <laughs> anyway, um, all right, keep going, the rest of verse five, she will become plunder for the nations and her villages on the mainland will be slaughtered by the sword, then they will know that I am the Lord, so this great city state, Tyre, with the massive navy, they had like one of the greatest navies in the ancient world, they were the ones that would go around bullying people, destroying nations, and then taking all this stuff as plunder, war prizes. By the way, speaking of that, I didn't really know a lot about this, and I just started reading about this, uh, that the U.S. soldiers did this in World War II. Did you guys know about this? I, didn't, I, you know, I hadn't really read a lot about this, but I was watching Pawn Stars, speaking of how much I hate the History Channel. I love Pawn Stars, actually. And this guy was selling something that he's like, yeah, my dad brought this home. For, it was like a compass or something. Brought this home from Germany. And I was like, so he just stole it from some people? And then I looked it up, and that's what he did. 
<laughs> right? They were marching through Germany, and you could just put a stamp on anything and send it home and fill out a form, and that was your war plunder. I thought we were done with that, but I guess not. Anyway, uh, it was a way bigger thing in the ancient world. And these were the people that used to do that to everybody. They used to go around, bully people, and take their lunch. And God said, now you're going to be the pathetic one sitting at the cafeteria, and somebody bigger than you is going to come along, and he's going to take your lunch, and there's nothing you can do about it. You're going to get a taste of your own medicine. Oh, how the turntables. Now you guys don't watch The Office. All right, anyway, keep going. Verse 7, for this is what the Lord God says. See, I am about to bring Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, king of kings, against Tyre from the north with horses, chariots, cavalry, and a huge assembly of troops. He will slaughter your villages in the mainland with your sword. So that's what he did when he destroyed the old city of Tyre. He will set up siege works, build a ramp, raise up walls of shields against you. He, and Nebuchadnezzar did all that stuff. He will direct blows of his battering rams against your walls and tear down your towers with his iron tools. His horses will be so numerous that the dust will cover you. When he enters your gates, an army, uh, as an army entering a breached city, your walls will shake from the noisy cavalry wagons and chariots. He will trample all your streets with hooves and horses. He will slaughter your people with the sword, and your mighty pillars will fall to the ground. Then they will take your wealth as spoil and plunder your merchandise. They will demolish your walls and tear down your beautiful homes. Then they will throw your, uh, then they will throw your stones, timber, and soil into the water. So again, it says here, this is how this prophecy worked. I'm going to send a bunch of nations, and they're going to do stuff to you. I'm going to send Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to do stuff to you. And then he gives the list. So some of the stuff in that description doesn't really apply to Nebuchadnezzar, but does apply to, I'm talking about Alexander specifically, but there were other times. Um, the Romans, I think, at one point destroyed Tyre. Years later, um, uh, Islamic armies came and did kind of the same thing and destroyed this city, was the final destruction of this city, was in, I remember reading it, I forget, it was like, I don't know, eight or nine hundreds, something like that. Um, So a lot of this stuff, it just kind of happened over and over again. And the imagery that's used in all of this is stuff that people in the ancient world would have immediately recognized. This is an army sieging a city and doing what armies do all the time, where they break into the city and they destroy everything. It's brutal. Verse 13, I will put an end to the noise of your songs and the sound of your lyres will no longer be heard. I will turn you into a bare rock and a place to spread nets. You will never be rebuilt, for I, the Lord, have spoken. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So first he says, I'm going to put an end to your songs. So this is a carefree society, uh, successful. They're they're very wealthy city, and they don't have a lot to worry about. They're loved by a lot of people, feared by a lot of people. And God says, you guys are all just happy-go-lucky. I'm going to put an end to that. You're not going to sing these kind of songs anymore. And then your city will never be rebuilt. Well, the city of Tyre was rebuilt a bunch of times, actually, but I think this is one of those places where scripture uses sort of uh, hyperbolic language. You'll never be rebuilt, meaning not they won't put up little shacks and stuff, but you will never have the level that you will be, you know, you will never be rebuilt in the same way again, right? Um, You won't be this great city that you used to be. Um, And now, actually, if you look up Tyre, if you go to where Tyre is now, um, the, the waterway between the island, uh, the geography has changed. You can walk out there now. Um, and it's just, there's not really a lot out there. You know, it's like a 7-Eleven and a, no, I'm just kidding. I don't really know what's out there. But um, <laughs> what I read was it's not, you know, it's not this massive city-state that's an economic powerhouse. You know, anybody ever been on vacation to Tyre? Nope. 
right? Anybody had their work do some major business deals and go to a conference entire? No. So it was rebuilt, kind of, but not like to its former glory. So how did the people then um, around them react to the judgment? That's the next part. So God says, I'm going to judge the city. It's going to fall. And then this is what the Lord says to Tyre in verse 15. Won't the coasts and islands quake at the sound of your downfall when the wounded groan and slaughter occurs within you? All the princes of the sea will descend from their thrones, remove their robes, strip off their embroidered garments. They will clothe themselves with trembling. They will sit on the ground, tremble continually, and be appalled at you. Then they will lament for you and say of you, how you have perished, city of renown, you who were populated from the seas, she who was powerful on the sea, and all her inhabitants inflicted their terror. Now the coastlines tremble, and on the day of your downfall, the island and the seas are alarmed by your demise. So the people around them will see the devastation that God brings on this city, and they will mourn, and they will weep as this one great city, this economic juggernaut, falls and is completely humbled. And that's how bad this judgment will be. And so what Ezekiel, like, he's giving you the level. It's going to be so bad that everybody looks at you and goes, ooh, you know. Um, have you ever had an injury like that? I have. Where you thought it wasn't that bad, and then everybody around you had a face, and you're like, what? And then you look down, and half your foot is gone, you know? You guys remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was okay, and then I crashed in front of a... Um, an elementary school while they're picking up their kids and all the moms were waiting for their kids to come outside. And so there were all these like soccer moms standing around and I stood up and they were like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I'm fine. I think I hurt my foot a little. And then I looked up what made me, I remember this, what made me look down at my foot was seeing them. They were all looking at me and I went, huh? And I looked, oh, that's not good. <laughs> right? Okay. That's the level of destruction we've got here. God is going to destroy these people so much that the people around them are going to have the same reaction that the soccer moms had when basically half my foot scraped off on the floor. Okay. Um, hey, you guys shouldn't have had a pastor who's a motorcyclist if you don't want the stories. All right, here we go. Keep going. So, um, uh, barely. It's still a pretty big scar on the inside of my foot, right? Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, what happened was I scraped my foot on this and it just like cheese grated the inside of my foot. So maybe don't ride motorcycles if you don't have to. Okay, verse 19, keep going. For this is what the Lord God says. When I make you a ruined city, like the other deserted cities, when I raise up the deep against you, this is important, look at this language. When I raise up the deep against you so that the mighty waters cover you, then I will bring you down to be with those who descend to the pit, to the people of antiquity. I will make you dwell in the underworld like the ancient ruins with those who descend to the pit, that you will no longer be inhabited or display your splendor in the land of the living. I will make you an object of horror, and you will no longer exist. You will be sought, but will never be found again. This is the declaration of the Lord. So Tyre was this, um, this city-state that was on the water, and they were very proud of their navy and their merchant ships, right? These were seafaring people. And so God uses this imagery of the deep and the ocean to say this thing that you love and you depend on, this thing that you think makes you great is going to be what ultimately destroys you. That's the imagery he uses. So I'm going to cover you like when, you know, you're drowning, which I would rather get hit by 100 Jeep Grand Cherokees on my motorcycle than drowning. Oh, my gosh, that's my worst fear. Also, because I'm a terrible swimmer, you know? And so, anyway, this terrifying imagery of being covered with the water and nothing you can do about it. That's what he says. 
but it goes deeper than that. He says, you're not just going to drown and go into the ocean. You're going to drown, you're going to be covered by the water, and you're going to go all the way down into the underworld. In the Old Testament, the um, theology of heaven and hell isn't quite as developed. And so he just uses these very broad terms to say the pit, underworld, eternal death, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but the idea is that God means business, right? And so because of that, um, actually, let's keep going. Tyre, sorry, I'm not going to do that part. Try to skip some of this. Tyre is arrogance now. So we're in chapter 27. So why is this all going to happen? Why is this judgment so harsh? It's because this kind of pride and this kind of arrogance and the way that this city operated as an economic powerhouse that didn't take care of the people around them and put all their trust in their money and their stuff, that kind of attitude is terrible for the world. And so God says, look at this, uh, look at this arrogance, verse one. So the word of the Lord came to me, now son of man, lament for Tyre. So when you see that phrase lament for, or I sing a lament in the Old Testament, this was a specific thing that we don't do now, but it was a funeral song. So when somebody would die, they would kind of write a song about that person, right? And um, why they die, you know, whatever it is, I don't know. It's a sad, it's a sad idea. Uh, when I go someday, I want you guys to write a hilarious funeral song for me. And then we'll laugh about it when we're all dead in heaven. Okay, um, so this is the funeral song, though. Verse 3. Say to Tyre, who is situated at the entrance of the sea, merchant of the peoples to many coasts and islands, this is what the Lord God says. Okay, so this is the funeral song. Tyre, you declared I am perfect in beauty. Already you can see this arrogance. I am perfect and beautiful, right? This is a big part of their sin. They are filled with this kind of pride. And so to address that, what, um, what God does in this, through Ezekiel in this funeral song is he gives this picture of, he describes the city of Tyre like one of their ships, one of their big merchant ships that they were so proud of. So this is what the ship looked like in verse, um, we're going to go 4 to 11 here. Your realm was in the heart of the seas. Your builders, so that's how we know it's a ship, perfected your beauty. They constructed all your planking with pine trees from Sinar. They took cedar from Lebanon to make a mast for you. They made you... Uh, made your oars out of the oaks from Bashan. They made your deck out of cypress wood from the coasts of Cyprus, inlaid with ivory. Your sail was made of fine embroidered linen from Egypt and served as your banner. Your awning was blue and purple. Uh, was of blue and purple fabric from the coast of Elisha, I think. Okay, so first off, this is the finest constructed boat, right? This is Jeff Bezos's yacht. Do you guys know about Jeff Bezos's yacht? Did you hear about this? This is hilarious. I, okay, I, don't, I never looked up what actually happened. But he built a yacht in this shipyard. But the shipyard was behind a bridge. He knows. Yeah, it was behind a bridge. And Jeff Bezos thinks, well, I'm the richest guy in the world. I can do whatever I want. I'm just going to make this small town in Europe take this bridge apart so my yacht can get out. And then the town was like, no. And then I never found out what happened. Does anybody know? Did they take... He did? Ah, that guy sucks. Anyway, <laughs> yeah. Right, but yeah, this is Jeff Bezos' yacht. If you walked onto Jeff Bezos' yacht, you wouldn't go, why is it rusty? Right, you would go, why is it so opulent? Right, why are there, you know, what was it? Um, uh, I remember seeing before, like, he was president and everything, and he lived in uh, New York. Trump had, like, a gold toilet. This is like you walk in there and you go, why is the toilet gold? That seems wasteful and doesn't really make a lot of sense, you know, and it's kind of ugly. Um, this is that, right? This is like everything is the most uh, expensive. Verse 8, the inhabitants of Sidon, and so now we're going to look at the crew. The inhabitants of Sidon and Ardvard, no, Arvid, Arvad, 
I don't know how to say any of these names. I'm just making this up. Uh, were your rowers. Your wise men were within you. Tyre, they were your captains. The elders of Gebel and its wise men were within you, repairing your leaks. All the ships of the seas and the sailors came to you uh, to barter for your goods. Men of Persia, Lut, and Put were in your army, serving as your warriors. They hung shields and helmets in you. They gave you splendor. Men of Arvid and Helic were stationed on your walls around, and the Gamadites were in your towers. They hung their shields around your walls. They perfected your beauty. So the crew of this boat slash city-state, this was the best crew, right? They had the best people running this thing. You know, I don't know. What's an example of this? Uh, like the people you would never expect to be the crew, right? You have Navy SEALs and they're scrubbing the toilets and you have, you know, it's just, you have the best people doing this kind of stuff. Um, again, we don't have time to list in this. This could be a whole sermon just talking about all of the places that these people are from, all of the stuff that they bring with them. But basically the idea here is you have, as a city state, you were trading with some of the best people and you were trading some of the best stuff. Right, you are trading Lamborghinis and Ferraris, and you were dealing in iPhones and that ridiculous new Apple headset that's like eleven grand or whatever, and uh, you know Armani suits and fancy designer dresses, and you know that's the idea. And you were doing this with the best people, and you're the guy on TikTok who's in Dubai, and everybody's like, "Wow, look how rich that guy is! He's on TikTok and he's in Dubai, and his hair is slicked back, and he's got a nice suit on." and um, this was Tyre, right? They had it all, the pinnacle of luxury. But back to that image of the beautiful ship, right? God, what happens here is, in this part, is God sinks the ship. God says, you're this beautiful ship, and now I'm going to talk about how it sinks. This would be like, uh, I thought of this, for America. We don't really, you know, okay. God says to America, we all think we're the same, don't we? Can you imagine America not being here as a nation? Right? This is what Tyre thought. We, they thought they were invincible. We think we're invincible. It's like God coming and saying to America, you were a beautiful drone. You had, I don't know what's the wingspan of those big giant drones, 40-foot wingspan or I don't know, big, you know. Uh, lots of bombs to drop, best radar, you know, or I don't know how a drone works, you know, but all the nicest stuff. You're a titanium drone with gold inlays and all this stuff. You're the best drone in the world. And then you got shot out of the sky and some kid found you and he melted down the metal and he made you a toaster. And now you sit in some small town making toast for some family that nobody cares about, right? Uh, you used to Sail the skies and put fear into the hearts of men. And now you burn bagels, right? That's, the, that's, the, that's basically what he tells him here, right? And that's um, uh, because, you know, you, you're nothing now. You were this beautiful ship, and now you're going to be nothing. And so um, in this next section, what he talks about is not just the sink. He'll get to the sinking of the ship and all that stuff. But in this next section, he gives a list of all the people that Tyre used to trade with. Right, these are all the, the lists. This is the Rolodex. You guys know about that? You remember that from back in the day? You do know what that is? I'm shocked. This is the contacts list in your app, right? These are the people that... Um, I remember watching a podcast once, and they asked some guy. I don't even remember who the two people were. I saw a clip of this. Uh, and they said, who's the most famous person in your phone? And the guy had somebody famous. He was like, call him right now and see if he answers. And he called him, and Tom Hanks answered or whatever. And it was like, look at my 
look at, I know Tom Hanks or whatever. Look, that makes me important because I have Tom Hanks' phone number. This is the list, right? So look at verse 12. Tarshish was your trading partner because of your abundant wealth in every kind. They exchanged silver, iron, tin, and lead for your merchandise. Juven and Tubal, Mekesh were your merchants. They exchanged slaves and bronze utensils for your goods. Those from Beth Tagarma, Tagarma, maybe, exchanged horses, war horses, and mules for your merchandise. Men of Dedan were also your merchants. Many coasts and islands were your regular markets. They brought back ivory tusks and ebony as your payment. Aram was your trading partner because of your numerous products. They exchanged turquoise, purple, embroidered cloth, fine linen, coral, rubies for your merchandise. Judah, that's the people of God, and the land of Israel were your merchants. They exchanged wheat from Mineth, meal, honey, oil, and balm for your goods. Damascus was also your trading partner because of the numerous products and your abundant wealth of every kind, trading in wine from Helban and white wool. Vedan and uh, Javan from Uzal dealt... Uh, with your merchandise, wrought iron, cassia, and aromic cane were exchanged for your goods. Dedan was your merchant uh, in saddle cloths for riding. Arabia and all the princes of Kedar were your, your business partners, trading with them lambs, rams, and goats. The merchants of Sheba and Ramah traded with you. For your merchandise, they exchanged the best of all spices, all kinds of precious stones as well as gold. Haran, Canaan, uh, no, Caneh. Eden and the merchants of Sheba, Asher, and Kilmad traded with you. All right, we're almost done here. They were your merchants in choice garments, cloaks of blue and embroidered materials. Blue and purple, by the way, was really hard to do back in the ancient world. Um, and multicolored carpets, which were bound and secured with cords in your marketplace. And then, um, so this is the group. This is, like I said, this is the Lamborghinis, the Ferraris. This is your trading with people in you know, Singapore and Dubai and Beijing and London. And you're very proud of all this stuff that you trade and you're very proud of who you trade it with. And so what does God do? He sinks the ship, right? Verse 25, ships of Tarshish were the carriers for your goods. So you became full and heavy loaded in the heart of the sea. The reason that the ship sinks is because they were full of crap and it couldn't flow anymore. That's what, that's what God says. You're so weighed down with the luxury goods that you sink to the bottom of the ocean. It's their own lust that brings them down. Your rowers have brought you onto the high seas, but the east wind has wrecked you in the heart of the sea. The east being Babylon and Alexander, they all came from the east. Your wealth, merchandise, and goods, your sailors and captives, I'm sorry, captains, those who repair your leaks, those who barter for your goods, and all the warriors on board with all the other people within you sink into the heart of the sea on the day of your downfall. The countryside shakes and the sound of your sailors cry. So the ship goes down and everybody on the ship dies, lost at sea, swallowed up into the great deep. And again, um, uh, the end here is the people around watch what happens and they mourn. All the oarsmen disembark from their ships. The sailors and the captains of the sea stand on the shore. Because of you, they raise their voices. They cry out bitterly. They throw dust on their heads. They roll in ashes. They shave their heads. Because of you, this is all mourning stuff, right? They shave their heads because of you. They wrap themselves in sackcloth. They weep over you with a deep anguish and bitter mourning. In their wailing, they lament for you, mourning over you. Who was like Tyre, silenced in the middle of the sea? When your merchandise was unloaded from the sea, you satisfied many people. You enriched the kings of the earth with your abundant wealth and goods. Now you are wrecked by the sea in the depth, 
the depths of the waters. Your goods and the people within you have gone down. All the inhabitants of the coast and islands are appalled at you. The kings, they shudder with fear. Their faces are contorted. Those who trade among the peoples scoff at you. You have become an object of horror, and you will never be, you will never exist again. So you'll be dead and gone. Your luxuries will be at the bottom of the sea, and all that will be left of you is the memory of the people around you, who it turns out, they didn't really love you. They just wanted to use you for the stuff that you brought them. Next week, we're going to talk about the leader of Tyre specifically, um, but for now, that's where we're going to stop. And what I want to do is take a minute and look at the fall of this city and why God said that he would do it. Somebody shout it out. What's the big problem with the city of Tyre? Pride. Pride. Yep, pride. That's what God said. God hates pride, right? Not just, hmm, that's kind of annoying, pride. He hates it. And he hates specifically what pride, uh, how it shows up in our lives. And the Bible uses this word that we don't use a lot in English, but it's this word that shows up in Hebrew and Greek, boasting. You know boasting? All right, here I'm going to tell you, this was the mistake of Tyre. They sought fulfillment in life by boasting, by being filled with pride. Now, let me tell you how this works, this kind of pride and boasting. Okay, here's the three steps to boasting. You have an inner pride about whatever, okay, about something. Um, okay, something you're good at, and you, you know, you're proud of yourself. And you just think, man, not just like, oh, hey, that's cool, I'm good at that. That's not really pride. Pride is I'm better than you because I'm good at that. Look, at, look how good I am at this. Right? You knock other people down to lift yourself up. And so the way that plays out is you make sure that everybody sees it and comments. Right? The one thing pride hates is not being recognized by the people around you. you know, and we all know that feeling because we're all proud. When we think we should be getting recognition for something and we don't get it, that eats us alive. And so the third thing that happens with boasting is People praise you for whatever. Everybody sees it, makes their comments. So then you internalize those comments and that praise, and then you build your whole identity on it. This is what props me up. So it starts with, I'm good at, I don't know, something. Right? I'm the world's best basket weaver. Okay? I make the best baskets. These are primo baskets. I sell them on Etsy. And then what I need is I need everybody to buy these baskets, and I need them to write in the comments how good these baskets are. And when they do, all of a sudden, I'm very proud of myself. And I think, you know who I am? I'm the guy who makes baskets. Now, um, Proverbs says this, talking about pride and boasting. A scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty man who acts with arrogance and pride. The Bible calls this person a scoffer. That's not a great word. Right, this is not a nice term. The Bible says basically over and over again, God is not digging people who do this. Like God does not like this kind of pride. But we're all built this way, aren't we? We're all proud. Let me tell you a couple of ways that this three... Here, I'll go back to this threefold pattern here. I'll leave this slide here for a minute. Think about how this shows up in our lives. You think, oh, church people, we don't do this. We absolutely do this, and we're terrible at it. It shows up in ministry. Okay? Pastor... Yeah, looking at you starting a church, right? Just kidding. Um, right, this shows up with us pastors. Is first step, I'm a really good preacher. Second step, I need people to tell me I'm a really good preacher. And then third step is, who am I? I'm the preacher. Right? That's the step. That's the that's that's boasting, and building my identity on, I'm not a child of God. I'm the preacher. 
who happens to also be a child of God. We do this with work, right? I'm really good at my job. I don't know, I've never been good at a job, but you know, I'm really good at my job. I need people at work to give me that recognition, right? I think I'm good. I need a good performance review. I need my peers to notice how great I am. I need them to say something. And when they do, who am I? I'm the guy who's good at my job. That's my identity. And so all of a sudden then, what happens? You get a bad performance review. And it's not a surface level thing that you can change. They've attacked my identity because I'm proud and because I'm a boaster. Right? This happens with knowledge. Right? For the two or three of you who might have been good at school. Just kidding. But like, you know, you do something good at school, you think you're pretty smart. I need people to tell me I'm smart. I was the valedictorian, whatever it was. Now who are you? I'm the smart kid. And then all of a sudden you get an F on a test. What happens? It's not just an F on a test. You've knocked my whole identity and I don't know how to live with this. This is why they closed off the tower at UC Berkeley. Did you know about this? That you used to be able to, yeah, Paul seems to know, yeah, you used to be able to go up to the tower and look at the view. And then kids kept jumping off the tower. Berkeley kids, these are smart kids, right? But they get an F on a test after getting A's for their whole lives and it knocked their identity. This is pride, this is boasting. We do this in, in, in our chapter here. It seems to be that uh, one of the ways that this played out was Tyre was very proud of their Rolodex, very proud of their connections. I have Tom Hanks's phone number. And you start telling, you're working in conversations. Oh, yeah, I was just talking to Tom the other day. Oh, Tom Hanks. And um, now you're the guy who knows Tom Hanks. And then you go to a party, and Tom Hanks says, I'm sorry, what was your name again? And your whole identity is shattered. Or your business falls apart and your connections, that's kind of a joke. But a lot of people, our connections and our, you know, I think people use something called LinkedIn, right? Where they look at all these people I know. I've never had a real job, so that's not, I'm not on LinkedIn, you know? But, um, you know, like this, look at all my connections. And then when something there falls apart, it's again, it's an attack on identity. We do it with our family. Look how good of a parent I am. I need people to see that. And then your kid grows up and sucks and you're like, I'm terrible, like it knocks my whole identity. We do this with uh, who, where our family status, you know, like, oh, I'm a trust fund kid, look at who my family is. Like I saw a guy getting on video, <laughs> remember I talked about how we shouldn't watch those videos about people getting kicked off the planes, you know? Well, anyway, I saw one of those videos and uh, it was a kid getting kicked off a plane and he was shouting, you know who my dad is? And I was like, what <laughs> does that have to do with that you're drunk on the plane, man? We do this with our, economic status, how much money we have. We do this with our racial uh, identity. We do it with how many followers we have online and who likes what. And all of a sudden you post something and nobody likes it, you know? And then you're like, oh, ooh, that like got me right in the heart. Why did that get you in the heart? You know, who cares, right? Because it's more of your identity than it should be. We do this with personality traits. I'm the funny one. Now I have to always be the funny one or I mean, we do this with negative traits. I'm the depressed one, right? We build our identities on this thing, and it all, underneath all of that stuff is the same problem that we had with Tyre. It was pride and boasting. Um, there's a story in the book of Esther, and there's a guy named Haman. Now, yeah, there you go. I was about to say, Jewish families have a tradition where they tell this story every year at Purim, and every time they mention Haman, everybody's supposed to boo and hiss and everything. Yeah, and uh, when I used to do this with my youth group, we read the book of Esther. It got really funny. They would like throw stuff at me and hissing and it became like, how loud could the whole youth group get while we were doing this? Well, anyway, um, he was a turkey and he worked for the king of Persia, but he was like right below him, 
right? He was like a pretty important guy. And there's two incidents that we see where really we see this play out in his life. The first one is he hated Esther's uncle, this guy named Mordecai, because one day uh, Haman, he walks into the room and everybody bows down to him, right? Oh, my Lord. And he looks up and he sees this whole crowd of people bowing and Mordecai standing there like this. And he thinks, I hate this guy so much. So what does he do? Look at this in Esther. He goes home. He controlled himself, and he went home because he wanted to kill him. Okay? So he, he, set, he sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh, to join him. And then Haman described them, his glorious wealth and his many sons. He told them about how the king had honored him and promoted him in rank over the other officials and the royal staff. So he goes home, he throws himself a surprise party, and he says, I need everybody to tell me how great I am. Why? Because Mordecai didn't just challenge his position as a leader, a something surface level, by not bowing to him because Haman was so proud and so wrapped up in his position and power that Mordecai attacked his identity. And he, he completely falls apart and he goes home and he says, everybody tell me how great I am. And um, it was a TV show. They just did that where some, you know, uh, oh, it was that 70s show. Yeah, she threw a party for herself. Anyway, that's the first incident. The second incident is one of my favorite parts of the whole Bible because it's funny. Okay, so Haman, so the king one night can't sleep. Yeah, the king can't sleep. And so he's like, bring me the court reporter guy to read me the record so I can fall asleep. <laughs> I guess they didn't have the BBC World News Podcast back there, or Global News Podcast, yeah. So they're reading on the thing. And in the records, they find out, that Mordecai, the uncle that Haman hates, had saved the king's life at one point. He found this plot to assassinate the king, and he, he stopped the whole thing. And so the king is hearing the story for the first time. He never heard it. And so he gets all excited. I didn't know Mordecai saved my life. So he runs out into the hallway, and he sees Haman walking by. And he says, dude, okay, there's this guy, and I want, he's like the greatest guy in the whole world. And Haman goes, he's talking about me. Right? Obviously, he's talking about me. Okay, the king goes, I love this guy so much, you have no idea. He's the best guy in the whole world. So what should I do for somebody like this? I don't know, what's the protocol? What do I do? And Haman, thinking he's talking about him, he goes, all right, here's what you do. Okay, you take him and you give him your horse and your jacket and everything, right? And so you let him ride in the presidential limo kind of a thing, and you parade him around the city, and you tell everybody, this is the greatest dude of all time. And then the king goes, okay, that's a great idea. Uh, you, go do that for Mordecai, the guy that you hate more than anybody. Now, how do you think that this jabroni, we're bringing it back, how do you think that this jabroni took it? Not great, right? Because his whole identity is wrapped up in this pride and this boasting. So look at this. This is the end of that story. Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried off home, mournful, and with his head covered. So he has to parade Mordecai around, and he goes home, and he puts on his funeral clothes. That, like, that's how intense this hatred was. He cried like a baby. He acted like somebody had died because he had to be nice to the guy that he didn't love, right? Why? Because his whole identity, his sense of purpose, his hope, his inner peace, all of that doesn't come from somewhere that's lasting. It comes from boasting. It came from pride. It came from, I need the respect of people, and then, right, you remember the Jim Carrey video we watched a couple weeks ago? Then I will feel like enough. You remember that? If I get one more Golden Globe, then I'll be enough. This is exactly the sin of Tyre. Look how successful we are. Look how 
Nobody is ever going to break down these city walls. Look at who we know and who we trade with. Look at my Rolodex. I'm so important. I'm so much better than the people of Jerusalem whose city just fell. Right? They're the turkeys. I'm great. Our gods are better than their one and only God. And the one and only God said, I'm not having it. Here's the thing. This is how everybody in the history of the world lives. This is how we're born. This is how we're wired. We're wired because of the fall and because of our sin. We're wired to be selfish and we're wired to seek out our identity and we're wired to seek out our fulfillment and inner peace from stuff like this. And eventually what happens is people get to the point where they realize that this identity and building their identity on pride and boasting, uh, it won't hold. And what we need is something deeper and more secure, more stable. And the gospel story tells us that we find that in Jesus. When Jesus saves us, he doesn't just keep us from punishment, right? Christianity is not fire insurance, right? I always say that. It's, he brings us into this whole new life. He gives us a new identity. He gives us something that will ultimately last. And he says, now you don't have to get your sense of fulfillment and inner peace from your work, from your family, from your spouse, from your success, because here's the greatest thing about you is that I love you and I die for you. And that will never change. And so you can get fired from a job and it sucks, but it doesn't rock your identity, right? You can, you can um, I don't know, what were some of those other things? You can make a terrible basket and not even be the world's greatest basket weaver and you'll be fine with that, right? Whatever it is that you were trying to build your identity on before um, in Christianity is replaced with... Um, is replaced with the gospel story, is replaced with the love of God. That's what the people of Tyre never really seem to learn. That's what people like Mordecai never really seem to learn. But looking at this whole story through the eyes of the New Testament, this is exactly what we see. The judgment that fell on Tyre, right? The death and the destruction and the wrath of God, all that stuff, all of that fell on Jesus on the cross. And because all of that wrath and all of that judgment fell on Jesus, we are redeemed and we are created, we are recreated into something new, into something better. And we're given a foundation that nobody can ever take away from you. You can be put in prison like Paul, right? Where he's dying, he thinks he's about to die and he's excited. He says, nobody can take this away from me. Nobody can take away my truest identity. And so the application to a sermon like this then is very simple. Go home and ask yourself this question. What's my foundation? Right? Is my foundation something temporary? Something like, a, you know, I almost said fart in the wind, but I don't think a pastor can say that from, a, you know, just <laughs> disappears in the wind, you know what I mean? Right? Is it something like that? Or is it something more eternal and lasting? Right? And the way that you can tell is by how you react in these situations. Right? When you react so poorly because whatever it is, right, because a bad review at work, because your identity is built on your work. So right now, all I want you to do is just go home and take inventory and just sit down and pray, get your journal out if you journal or whatever it is that you do and ask the Lord, what am I trying to build my identity on that's not you? And then just pray, Lord, I want that thing moved out of my life and I want it to be replaced with you and your gospel and your death and your resurrection. All right, let's pray.